Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Well, welcome to History 605. Today on the show is Daniel Burge. Daniel is an associate editor at the Kentucky Historical Society. He grew up in Washington, D.C. and earned his doctorate in history at the University of Alabama. His research is on empire and, interestingly, how humor is used in politics. Uh, Today, we'll be discussing his book, A Failed Vision of Empire, The Collapse of Manifest Destiny. It was published by University of Nebraska Press in 2022. Daniel, thanks for joining us on History 605. Thank you for having me. From time to time, you know, in, in history circles, we hear of how historians are revising history, and there's often a lot of suspicion about such things. Uh, but you, with this book, you're revising the earlier revisions. Uh, this idea that manifest destiny is something we all learn in high school, but you taught me that, well, the books were wrong. Uh, before, but before we get into that, I wonder, let's chat a bit about what most folks were taught in high school history or college or even grad school. In my grad school program, it was kind of thought of it this way. Can you briefly describe that textbook description of manifest destiny? Yes. So even when I began the dissertation process many years ago now, the definition I was working from and that I sort of understood as manifest destiny was the idea of East the West expansion. Basically, anything that happens from the 1840s all the way through mid-1850s, most times focusing on Texas, the U.S.-Mexican War, and then what the U.S. decides to do with Texas, New Mexico, California. So sort of the acquisition of the Southwest or what becomes the U.S. Southwest. Sometimes Cuba gets thrown in there. So there is mention in a lot of books about filibustering, which I'm sure we'll kind of get around to eventually in today's discussion. But sort of what happens with Cuba, but most times it really does focus on East to West. And the, the narrative that I was taught, and I think you still find so often in U.S. history textbooks is this idea that manifest destiny comes about in the 1840s. It's the idea that the United States is destined to go from the Atlantic to the Pacific, that it's fulfilled or else realized late 1840s with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, when the U.S. ends the U.S.-Mexican War and acquires the land stretching from Texas all the way to California. So that sort of thing. So that was a narrative that I was always taught That was a definition I was actually working with when I began this whole process. I was simply interested in going, okay, we know a lot about the people who believed in this idea and who were proponents of expansion, 
let me flesh out those who did not. So let's flip the tables, Mm -hmm. look at those who did it. And I think that was where I started to see, wait a second, people are not talking about manifest destiny in the same way that I think of manifest destiny. And I think that I was taught manifest destiny as this really popular sort of pervasive idea that just goes away after the U.S. gets California because the U.S. has achieved its goal. It's gotten the Pacific coast. It has access to the Pacific trade with Japan has opened up and you sort of see those things. So that's the narrative that I was taught. That's the one that I was familiar with. So this has been sort of a process of unlearning. But what I really hope is it's digging back into how Americans in the 19th century saw it. So it is sort of a revision of a revision because I'm trying to get back to how if you were living in the 1840s or 1850s and you saw an article of Manifest Destiny, what were they saying about it? That's kind of what I want to recapture. I hope I recaptured in the book. Yeah. Well, the the discussions that you have, the very cast of colorful characters that uh, float in and out of the narrative, um, and these people that are kind of, well, we could get into the personalities and I hope we hope we do, Zachary Taylor and so forth. He, he emerges from your book, a far more complex character than I had ever really given him credit for. Well, you talked about uh, getting to know the people. I think that's what I, I find that method of doing history and letting the past speak for itself in its own terms is something that's unfortunately getting, getting kind of controversial these days. Um, and I, I was uh, very glad that uh, you let the characters of the past speak for themselves and you try to understand them on their own terms. And I think we, get a very rich book for that before. Well, before we get into it though, I wonder what's been the response from what have other scholars said about your book? Are people saying, Oh, who's this young kid? He's, he's, he's smoking something. What's going on. <laughs> it's been interesting. Um, Cause when I go, I just would give a book talk at a college in North Carolina. The response is interesting sometimes because there are people who sort of go, Oh, I, I didn't learn it this way. Therefore it has to be wrong. Which has sort of been one of the interesting, oh, no, that can't be. That can't be. Like, I saw a textbook. It has this picture. It has to go this way. Scholars, however, and uh, reviews are still coming out. So it's still sort of a slow, slow, slow process. Yes. But most have been very favorable. I do have to say in that sort of lengthy introduction that I give, there's a couple of other scholars who have been sort of pointing in this direction and who have written books that are somewhat Mm -hmm. similar, um, looking at different periods of time, uh, but who I rely on heavily, but who also sort of build this argument. So they've sort of seized El Padre and said, okay, this sort of proves the point we've been making. So the reception has been good. It's also challenging. Um, Finding a publisher is difficult um, because you're going, oh, I don't agree with how almost, or the vast majority of people have found seen Manifest Destiny. Nebraska was great to work with. You know, I sent yeah. the prospectus to them. Um, yeah. My editor, she was like, oh, this sounds great. And it was just like you said, can you prove it? Can you show it through the evidence? Right. Can you work people through what you found? Um, because like I said, I didn't start out to go, oh, I'm going to overturn the idea of manifest destiny or that's that's what I want to do. This was a very, very gradual process. The epilogue was sort of one of those aha moments where I was I was looking at that image, um, John Gass image of, of yeah. Western progress, Western expansion. And I was like, that's not saying what we think it's saying. And, and that's sort of not not how we see it. 
if right, you go right. back. And that was sort of that, oh, okay, I need to kind of reframe some of this. That has been a process. I have to say most of the reviews have been really kind. Most people do seem to kind of understand the points I'm trying to make. So that has been mm-hmm. great. I'm sure someone's going to come out and disagree with it at some point. I'm sure that's inevitable. Yeah. Sort of it might be coming. But one of the, the historians that you mentioned in the introduction um, are the Heidlers. Uh, yes. I know Jeannie Heidler. I taught with her at the, at the Air Force Academy. In fact, I just booked her and her husband to be on the podcast on another book. So um, I'd be interested in, in uh, what they have to say about your book. Have they, have they registered an opinion? I have not heard from them. Okay. okay. So the thing that I really tried to do in that introduction was sort of lay the groundwork for why people have seen Manifest Destiny the way that they have. Yeah. So uh, I haven't, yes, I have not talked to them. I have not talked yeah. to to those who I sort of disagree with how they see Manifest Destiny. But right, right. I'm, I'm sort of looking forward to it, though, honestly. Let's see, like, the conversations that sort of grow out of this. Yeah, let's talk about the gassed painting. You you kind of save that for the end of the book, and all as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, well, when's he going to get to this painting that's in all the textbooks? <laughs> so you, you save this kind of uh, painting to the end, and, and unfortunately, this is an audio show and not a visual one, so we can't show the painting, but I'm sure many people will have saw it. Can you describe uh, the painting and its original intent and what it was meant to convey? Yeah, so it comes out, it's it's printed for a travelogue. So basically a publisher comes out and says, okay, here's kind of what's great about the U.S. West. And they use this image, which becomes known as American progress. And it's sort of the angel of progress, however you want to define that, floating majestically towards the West. It's supposed to be this pageant of Western sort of the civilization, if you will, of the West, So there's indigenous people who are fleeting, sort of hooking into this idea of the vanishing American. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. tropes sort of worked in with farmers taking over the land and all these sort of different things that we we typically associate with Western expansion. If you sort of see it from an idealized viewpoint, um, mid-late 19th century and into the 20th century, before people sort of challenge some some of those ideas. So you see how that sort of hooks into my major argument, which is people have used that particular image as an example of Manifest Destiny as sort of Western expansion. But if you look at the 1870s when the image was produced and when it was crafted, what goes along with that image is a small caption. It's sort of a mini write-up about what the image is said to represent. And it says really specifically in this in this magazine you know, this depicts the uh, America's portion of the continent of North America, Western expansion, U.S. moving from east to west. But it's it doesn't mention Manifest Destiny. And what I found as I was doing research and the more I looked at it was every time people talk about Manifest Destiny in the 1860s, all the way through really the 1890s, they're talking about the process of continental domination. So the U.S. acquiring mm-hmm. Canada, Cuba, all of Mexico. So not just sort of the chunk that the U.S. takes during the U.S.-Mexican War. Mm-hmm. They're very explicit in that. So they do not see this image as really dealing with manifest destiny. They would see it as a process of Western expansion, this sort of idealized myth of Western expansion. They would not have associated with manifest destiny. And that was one of my sort of interesting findings. Yeah. When I went back and looked, you really start to see it in the 1980s before people start taking that image and saying, you know, this represents manifest destiny. 
from that point onward, it's just an absolute boom of I'm ready to book a manifest destiny. This is going to be my cover image. So yeah. I always, my entire library at this point sort of has that as a cover image. Uh-huh. I told Nebraska, I was like, please, you guys can do whatever you want. And they did a great job with it. No, please, not that that particular one. Yeah. Um, so that is, I think, one of the more controversial arguments that I put forth near the end. And I did save it for the end because okay. I was trying to look chronologically. But I also just wanted to show how recent that interpretation of Manifest Destiny is. Because I think we can sort of see it as, oh, people have always seen this image as representing Manifest Destiny. It's really not until the 1980s, 1990s. So a relatively short space of time that you really see that idea play out. So it's been recent. Um, So that's kind of what I I try to show, how those ideas sort of grow and people just go, oh, yeah, that's the image. Well, let's do a little excavation on what the idea really was. So you you mentioned um, the 1840s is kind of beginning. Who's the first person to use the term manifest destiny and under what's what's the conditions by which he uses So this is what's tricky. Is there still a significant debate about this that I don't weigh into because I was – Kind of going, okay, I don't want to particularly delve into this debate. We know it's in an unsigned article that appears in the Democratic Review, which is a pretty prominent, very partisan Democratic magazine that operates out of New York. It's edited for a time by John L. O'Sullivan. Um, he passes it off, so other people end up purchasing it. He ends up writing editorials. It's a tricky situation to know who exactly penned the first article that used Manifest Destiny simply because they're all unsigned. So no one signs it. There's a bit of historical debate whether he wrote it. There's another interpretation that sees um, a female Jane McManus Storm Kasnow, if I've got it right. She married multiple times, so her name extends and extends. But the argument is that she actually had penned that unsigned editorials. Her, Her ideas sort of lined up with what O'Sullivan often wrote about. I tend to think it's O'Sullivan. I use him as an example in my chapter on the Civil War because he pops back in and uses a phrase again in an article he actually signs. So I would tend to think it's John L. O'Sullivan. That's not really the hill that I would like to die on. So if, if people disagree with that, <laughs> right. um, that's really not the point. But it's interesting. In the original article, he's talking about Texas annexation. Okay. And the unnamed author uses the idea of manifest destiny and says specifically that it refers to the continent of North America being set aside for the United States. And it's always talked about in this way, continental domination. Um, I know it kind of fades from popular memory. Canada is very much a part of that. We tend to think it sort of goes away after the war of 1812 when the U.S. invades Canada, but it really doesn't. That belief that Canada is just going to sort of decide to hook on to the Mm -hmm. U.S., for lack of a better term. I mean, just kind of incorporate itself into the U.S. is very present. O'Sullivan talks about it in terms of Texas annexation. He uses the same phrase in a New York newspaper in 1846 referring to Oregon. And it's in that particular debate. So debate on Oregon, what the U.S. should do with that territory, which is in dispute with Great Britain, that he again uses the phrase, which is why... A story back in the 20s said, this got to, this has to be John L. O'Sullivan because the same phrase pops up mm-hmm. in this magazine and in this newspaper. And O'Sullivan's the only sort of common thread between the two. But again, the argument is continental domination. Most historians have therefore taken that 
and used them within the context of the 1840s, but have sort of stripped it down a bit and have said that it only really applies to the annexation of Texas, U.S.-Mexican War, and what the U.S. does eventually work out with its boundary with Britain, with Oregon, the Oregon Territory. Okay. So in the context of 1845, it does refer to Texas. It sort of gets expanded from that point on. One of the things that comes clear in your book is that how all this is hotly debated, uh, whether it's O'Sullivan. Certainly there's a strong wing in the Democratic Party in the 1840s, 50s, 60s about expanding over the continent to include Cuba. But the election of 1848 uh, refutes that. I mean, the American people say, no, we we don't want to do that. What does it what does it kind of mean for for them politically to constantly push at this? taking the entirety of the continent and then losing the argument one time after the next. 1848 ended up becoming a really vital part. You mentioned Zachary Taylor. Yeah. I, I, would, I guess like most people, I had no understanding or knowledge of Zachary Taylor, which is kind of ironic because I ended up moving and taking a job at the Kentucky Historical Society. And Zachary Taylor is the only former president buried in Kentucky. Okay. Um, so he's buried in Louisville or just outside of Louisville. So it's kind of interesting that I ended up sort of having a fascination with Zachary Taylor, but it kind of hooked into two things. The first thing I found was that after the U.S.-Mexican War, people are still debating Manifest Destiny. So there's definitely still dialogue about it. It does not go away. It does not fade away, which again sort of ties back to my main argument. If we're simply talking East-to-West expansion, Manifest Destiny should be dead or fulfilled by 1848, when the U.S. ends the U.S.-Mexican War. The contemporary debates just refute that. Um, the one image that I really love is of Lewis Cass with the sword Manifest Destiny sort of inscribed on his sword. And that plays out throughout the entire campaign of 1848, which is Zachary Taylor basically saying, look, I'm a soldier. I've served in the military. I don't think we should conquer other countries. I think we should sort of have this more Pacific mindset, still have a strong military, but we don't have to sort of conquer our neighbors. Mm -hmm. If you elect Lewis Cass, that's what he wants to do. He wants to go the war path and basically go out there, take Cuba, get involved in Yucatan, expand the U.S. empire in the late 1840s. And I think that resonates with a lot of people. We think of the U.S.-Mexican War as being popular, and I do think it was relatively popular, I don't think that necessarily means that people want to get involved in another war mm -hmm. right at the end of that. And I do think Zachary Taylor, to an extent historians have not really recognized, understands that and says, look, I've led the military. I understand combat. I get this idea and I understand why we fight. We don't have to always do that. And we don't always have to work out our difficulties by going to war. And I do think that resonates with people to a greater extent. There is that fear that if you elect Cass, it's just going to be unlimited warfare. You're going to either end up with a fight with Mexico. Mm -hmm. You might end up in a fight with Great Britain because Lewis Cass is a notorious Anglophobe. I mean, he yeah. hates, hates, <laughs> hates Great Britain. You might end up in a war with Spain over Cuba if you keep invading it. So I think I do think Taylor sort of he has policies that resonate with people and he puts those out there in a way that get overlooked mainly because he dies so quickly. He's just forgettable. Yeah, you know, he, yeah. he wins the election, he dies over the next year, and it's sort of like, okay, who's Zachary Taylor? Is he really important? Right. But yeah, he is, he is, because it's yeah. a big election. 
and it does sort of refute manifest destiny because people go, no, right. Go right. Well, it refutes manifest destiny. Then he succeeds in getting that this kind of, you know, deep into the diplomatic history of the United States. You have to be deep before you come up with the Clayton Bulwer Treaty, you know, <laughs> and but he it, this is the treaty with England that essentially kind of updates and reformats the Monroe Doctrine. But he gets, he achieves uh, American interests, signs a treaty with Britain, gets it done, then gets sick and dies. Yes. I mean, it's this kind of That's the story. like he, he, he wins the election refuting Manifest Destiny, does a treaty that brings about what the American people wanted and what he said he campaigned on and so forth without a war and then dies. Um, but people it, always overlook the Clayton Bulwer Treaty. And again, yeah. it's, it's it's a fascinating treaty because Taylor's idea is that you could work out the difficulties with Great Britain, that it's sort of, it's beneficial to not always be threatening them with war, that you can sort of negotiate. Mm-hmm. And they do, in a sense, they sort of divide up Central America. Um, they both see sort of the U.S., and Great Britain is, okay, if we don't fight each other, our influence in this region will be stronger. So there is sort of that pact. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think Taylor and a lot of Whigs recognize the superpower is not the United States. It's Great Britain. And it's wiser to be on their side than to have them as an antagonistic relationship. So Clayton Bulwer is sort of like, look, we'll divide this up. We won't build a canal. It does give the U.S. sort of it eventually improves the relationship between the two. And it also provides for years down the road, the U S goes, Oh, we're going to actually build this canal. Anyhow, yeah. <laughs> uh, we're going to just, you know what, can we get rid of this treaty? Cause we don't need it anymore. Right. Right. Um, and again, Taylor doesn't see that far down the road, but I, I do sure. think it's sort of it. It's realizing who your enemies are and who, who's the strongest person in the neighborhood and what you have to kind of do. Exactly. Cause it does. Um, the Whigs don't really accept the Monroe Doctrine that much to the extent that they don't see Britain's influence as being exactly negative. They see, okay, we can sort of both have our interest here. Let's not fight over it. Right. Whereas well, sir, Lewis Cass is very like, ah, yeah, yeah. Get out of here. Yeah. And he's kind of fallen from history too. I had to really dig deeper too to realize, oh yeah, Lewis Cass is the guy who, Zachary Taylor defeats for the uh, presidency in 1848. Um, I know. Um, I have a friend from Michigan, and she's always like, you always just discount Lewis Cass. And I was like, well, he has a lot of policies that I don't necessarily agree with. So let's right. let, let's leave right. it there. Well, and I think that's, uh, again, just to reiterate, that these the overtaking the entirety of the continent, not a popular thing. Um, and we'll um, see that time and time again in all these debates. What's the gist of the opposition then? Let, let's talk about the opposition. And, and and before we get to the Civil War and slavery, which is also a huge shadow over this whole debate, why do the Whigs, of which Zachary Taylor becomes their nominee, uh, and other, other Democrats, a minority within the Democratic Party at the time, why do they oppose this? Is it because of the thinking that we'll always be in war and this will be a constant violent event? I think there's a couple of different reasons. I try to flesh them out throughout the book. Some of it does have to do with race. And I think yeah. that's that later becomes a bigger factor when you look at the Dominican Republic and debates over that. Mm-hmm. So it's not really until my last chapter of the book that I actually really hit on that particular point. 
So there is a racial element involved. A lot of Democrats after the U.S.-Mexican War go, and I'm kind of paraphrasing here, but essentially, we got the best part of Mexico. Let's leave the rest of it out. And that's really the Clayton-Bulwer Treaty is this idea that, okay, the U.S. doesn't need to advance its interest in Central America. It doesn't have to move into Mexico as well, that it can sort of just let it be and leave it there, that you don't want to necessarily incorporate Mexicans or other peoples into the United States. So there is a heavy element of race involved. I do think to an extent we don't recognize a lot of it's just politics in the sense that Whigs don't think expansion is necessary. They don't believe you have to have a large territorial empire. A lot of just this just dates back to Democrats traditionally are the party of Jefferson, Jackson. I think we could throw Polk in there Mm -hmm. as well. Extended empire and territorial empire is good. They see it as good and beneficial. And the more land that they can acquire, they see that as being a benefit to the party. So there are those simple, for lack of a better term, just political divisions between the two parties. Um, You see it kind of flip, which is weird. That's why the book sort of goes differently after the Civil War, because all of a sudden the parties sort of flip. And all of a sudden, Republicans are like, let's expand. The Democrats are like, no, please stop. Like, we don't need, and all of a sudden, both parties are are just opposing each other from the opposite side. Mm -hmm. So I think it's politics. I do think some of it's just economics. A lot of people see war as being detrimental to the economy, that the U.S. will not come off, um, going back to the Whigs, in a trade war or an actual war with Great Britain, that the U.S. is not going to come off on the winning side of that. Right. And that's how a lot of Whigs approach it. So I think there's a lot of different factors involved. So some of it race, some of it economics. Some of it, I, I dug a little into this in the book. Some of it's religious. The idea that the U.S. is not justified in starting these wars, that it's 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 wrong to covet your neighbor's land mm-hmm. if that person is Mexican, if that person is Cuban, if that person is Canadian that the U.S. simply should not do that, that if these people want to join the United States, they can go through that process and sort of try to annex however that would work, their their Mm -hmm. state or their their country to the U.S., but that the U.S. should never force that upon others or just go to war um, to acquire territory. Again, there's a a lot more opponents to the U.S.-Mexican war than I think we often portray. And there's a lot of people who are uncomfortable with the idea of the United States as an aggressive conquering empire instead of really what they see as a a generally kind. Um, We know it's not true in the the sense that there are appropriated indigenous lands, but what what you do see over time is that argument that the U.S. should sort of either make trade treaties or abide by its treaties and should not have an aggressive stance towards the world. And I think Whigs tap into that. Republicans tap into that for a bit, but then they become a little bit crazy in the 1880s and 1890s. (laughs) We'll get into Seward. I found Seward's diatribes. Uh, Seward's great. Seward, yeah. Well, probably the two, uh, as we approach them in the Civil War, you know, Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas, the famous mm-hmm. Lincoln-Douglas debates. I love Douglas's line in here. Uh, the citizen throbs anew as he traces the extending line, right? He yes. says this on the floor of the Senate in, in one of these debates. Um and Lincoln, who's a or, yeah, Lincoln, who's opposed to the war in Mexico, probably loses his seat in Congress yes. over the issue, yeah. um, and then kind of rockets back to fame 
about uh, slavery and, and as the Whigs become the Republican Party uh, in the 1850s, he becomes their nominee in 1860 and wins the presidency. And then the Civil War starts. But then um, so Lincoln is kind of the school of Whiggish thought about, yes. no, we have a moral duty to to develop what we have. And this economics, I mean, his argument is very economic based, very morally, ethically um, informed. But Stephen Douglas and he uh, differ on this. So talk about let's talk about Douglas's um, presidential ambitions and how he's hoping to use Manifest Destiny to gain the White House or further his causes. Yeah, Douglas is such an interesting character because one of the things that I found quickly one of my arguments or one of the things I kind of hold is that we tend to study the proponents of Manifest Destiny because they wrote and talked so much. <laughs> like Caleb Cushing um, doesn't pop in as much, but he's sort of there in the background. Stephen Douglas, always giving a speech, always writing, always doing something, where a lot of these opponents of Manifest Destiny are just like, eh, that's a stupid idea. But they you know, show up and vote no, right? Yeah. They'll just kind of just laugh it off. And Stephen Douglas has given this like four hour oration out there. And they're like, yeah, that's that's Stephen Douglas again. Like this is his little pet pet topic that's just kind of dumb. Lincoln uh-huh. does that. He has a couple great, great sort of jibes at at Douglas about, oh, this is like the inventor of manifest destiny out here. Like, oh, this this nonsense that you see. Douglas is an interesting person, but he also just believes in this idea of expanded empire. And he, judging what he really wants to do is always difficult, but he always does think the U.S. is just going to keep expanding and expanding. Historians have had a lot of arguments over this. Is he doing it because he favors Southerners and he's thinking to himself, okay, I get the Southern vote if we get Cuba and Mex- or another chunk of Mexico. Would that be something that would be beneficial? So there is that argument. There's this what I tend to see is he's one of those people who just thinks the U.S. can expand and expand without ever suffering repercussions. And it's tied in with slavery to an extent. He's also open to acquiring Canada. He doesn't mind this idea of like unlimited expansion. Mm-hmm. And he does have this sort of fundamental manifest destiny belief that the U.S. is just kind of destined to go on and expand and expand and expand and keep on going. So there is that idea he doesn't, he fights everything that I talk about in the book. So he's outraged at the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. He's like, he's just, he votes against it. He says the U.S. should have taken all of Mexico and it doesn't take enough. Uh-huh. He's just outraged by that. He hates the clayton Bulwer Treaty. He votes against that and votes like, oh, I always voted against this. He votes against it because he says that it does specifically state that the U.S. will not seek to colonize Central America. And then it sort of names Nicaragua, Honduras, and it goes on through the different countries. He just he, he just finds that ludicrous. Like he he really believes that the US is destined to, you know, do what it did to Texas, have immigrant settlers, um, colonists go over, colonize a place, eventually break off from their government, annex themselves to the United States. He thinks that's going to just keep happening. Mexico will eventually do that. Nicaragua um, you'll see how Duras do that. Like all of this is just going to happen. He doesn't have well-conceived plans though. Cause yeah. everyone else is like, yeah, that's, that's not a good idea. We can't just fight everyone. 
but he is. I mean, he's constantly there. I think he's one of the firmest proponents of Manifest Destiny that we have. And as I think I argue, as I hopefully argue successfully throughout the book, he's not very successful at it. He's always on the losing side of votes. Um, mm-hmm. By the time he eventually becomes the nominee for the presidency, his party is split in half. So he just gets the northern half of the Democratic Party, which he always wants to be the Democratic nominee. Yeah. He's not really able to pull it off because by the time he does it, it's like his party's fractured. Yeah. So, but he's an interesting guy. Right. Um, definitely hard to understand his motivation, though. Well, it's it's another sign of the lack of popularity of Manifest Destiny, and I kind of as it, as it as it's taught so frequently in school today, or when I went to school, um, it was taught as it was popular. Uh, uh-huh. You mentioned religion too; that it was also taught as if it was a religious, it was a part of God's destiny for the United States, and people who are religious at the time are using religious arguments against it. Yes. And that's one of the things that I had to kind of dig into. And that's been a lot of the questions I've gotten at talks is, okay, I've always understood this as an idea that was backed by religion. And I think it's the same thing. I, I tell people this all the time. It's the same as if you look at the debates over slavery in the 1830s and 40s and 50s. I mean, people are, are turning to the Bible to make both sides of the argument, you know, mm-hmm. pro-slavery defense is, is, is ramping up. They're using these arguments, but a lot of abolitionists as well are arguing that, no, you can't do this because of X. Right. You see the same things with territorial debates, this idea of, okay, we shouldn't expand because you can't covet your neighbor's yard or your neighbor's house. Like mm-hmm. there's commandments about this, so we should not do this. And that's right. bad. <laughs> so it does. There's much more of a back and forth than I originally thought. Um, with both sides, even even proponents of manifest destiny don't really use religious arguments that much, um, in the sense of Stephen Douglas really, really doesn't bring it up. Um, okay. There is that idea that the U.S. is destined, but it's a very vague sort of destiny. It's like it's, we're just meant to do it. It's not. Mm-hmm. He's not using the Bible to make that argument. Yeah. Oh, and one thing I was going to talk about too: the purchase of Louisiana territory that all predates manifest destiny. Yes. yes. So the, the first major expansion in the United States in 1802, uh, arguably, is, you know, 40 years before John O'Sullivan starts using the term. Um, so there is something there about expansion, but the, the contingency of that event is something that just kind of falls in the American lap because of events that's going on in Europe. It has nothing to do with a religious fervor or Douglas's, you know, throbbing anew at tracing the extended line. They're so passionate in that day about how they speak. It's like, yeah, it's like, you can't just, you know, we really want this. It's like, no, no, we have to have it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it does. It definitely does predate. I wanted to, I only focused. There's a couple of reasons I should say. I focused on the period that I did. Yeah. And I had to get the book out eventually. So I was like, I can't keep going. I can't, (laughs) I wanted to kind of bring it into the 1890s. I was like, no, 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 I can't. This is enough. Um, so I, I do. I would like to go back a little bit because I do think there's a lot of interesting debates over the Louisiana Purchase. Like yes. not everyone's necessarily in favor of that. Right. That's where it just fall into the U.S. lap. A lot of the ideas about Cuba becoming part of the U.S. They're all talking about Thomas Jefferson because Jefferson sort of famously makes that argument that that Cuba sort of somehow destined to sort of fall into the lap of the U.S. So a lot of Democratic politicians are just 
basically rehashing what Jefferson said back in the day, that the U.S. is just sort of, you know, it's going to include Cuba somehow, one way or the other. It's just, it's going to happen. So you, you do yeah. see that play out. I think there's a rich history there that I'd like to explore. Yeah, that's another book. Um, <laughs> we mentioned Seward, and I was astounded at how the United States acquires Alaska. I mean, it happens in all under the guise without public awareness. Um, the Russians make an offer. Seward says, great. Runs it through over to the Senate. They debate it, not in a public way, which today, I mean, with C-SPAN and everything, I was unaware that they would have debates kind of without public uh, mm -hmm. awareness or the press being able to be in the gallery in the Senate and this kind of stuff. But so they push it through, it passes. And then when it hits the media, it's just shock and vitriol and derision for Seward for the rest of his life. Uh, yeah. It's um, an interesting, it's an interesting thing that plays out uh, because he, he's fascinated and above himself because he's one of these guys who's a Whig, a Republican, but then he's so pro us expansion. It blows your mind. Yeah. I, I don't know how Abraham Lincoln <laughs> sort of dealt with it. Cause he's always like, he, he, 1860, you're on the verge of the Civil War. Like, things are falling apart. He's out there in Minnesota giving a speech about how the U.S. is destined to eventually take over the continent. And then, so maybe we should move the capital, you know, to Minnesota, because that would make a lot more sense if the U.S. is going to be this huge sort of megalith and take, like, this entire... And that's the speech he gives. Wow. While all of this craziness is going on, and you just sit there and go, Dude, there's a lot happening right now. For <laughs> this could be your preoccupation, moving the capital to St. Paul. So that's kind of what plays out. He's just, he constantly thinks that. And then it's it's much like Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, it's not clever negotiations. It's not the U.S. sort of one-upping Russia and sort of sneaking this deal by. It's mm -hmm. very much like, would you like this territory? Uh, not really. But yeah, we'll, we'll take it. Um, one of the arguments they actually make <clears throat> throughout this debate is that Russia was an ally of the U.S. throughout the Civil War, which they were. They never really debated supporting the Confederacy. Therefore, it'd be an offense to the Tsar if the U.S. turned down the offer of Russia or Alaska. Oh, So th this idea of like, oh, we're just being buddies with them. So the Russians want, the Tsar wants to sell it because he needs the cash? And it's just kind of a hinterland that he can't control anyway? Or what's the Russian motivation for selling Alaska? It's pretty much that. It's okay. this idea of we don't necessarily need this. We think we could get some available sort of cash, if you will, for this transaction. Um, it's very much, I think it's tied in. The Louisiana Purchase is probably your best parallel. Yeah. At some point, Napoleon's like, we got to cut our losses. I right. think there's that sort of similar, similar idea the U.S. is interesting because even the arguments that take place within the Senate usually don't focus on, oh, Alaska is great. You know, this is great territory. It's usually sort of a roundabout. We have to do this to maintain our friendship with Russia or else, you know, if we get Alaska and Seward and Sumner both make this argument, the U.S. will sort of have Canada surrounded. Right. I know it sounds weird, but this idea of like, okay – we're going to sort of pressure them into joining us one of these days. If, yeah. if, if we have sort of this territory and we're beneath them, maybe since the civil war is over, you know, there's no more slavery. So they're, they're not going to sort of be opposed to that. 
maybe they'll just join us. Mm-hmm. And so there's that dynamic. It also just rushes through so quickly that it's, it's just like, oh, yeah. There's we'll just not it. a lot of thought. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yeah. not, it's difficult because it's not really super unpopular. It's just not something that people are thrilled about. You know, they make fun of it. It ends up easily getting through the Senate, which is rare because most of the book deals with Texas is highly debated. The U.S.-Mexican War is highly debated. Cuba's debated. Like all of these things are real debates. Alaska is just a short session. They meet. It's an overwhelming vote. There's a lot of corruption involved. Okay. (laughs) A land speculation going on. Is it? Land speculation. A few pockets get a little extra cash in them as time passes and yeah. it gets through well it wouldn't be the first, first well minnesota becomes a state due to the same kind of pocket lining and trading going on uh in, in you know in the advance of the civil war in fact south dakota it takes so long for south dakota and north dakota to become states because of the the senate balance and the washington politics to avoid a new state coming in so but i yeah. think it's nathaniel banks i'm forgetting who it is after the war but he gets Someone asked him about, you know, how he acquired or how he got all this money all of a sudden. And was he basically bribed to vote in favor of Alaska, um, taking Alaska? And he goes, I took the money, but I was going to vote yes anyhow. <laughs> so it's kind of like, a, yeah, yeah, I took that bribe, but, you know, it didn't change my vote, guys. Like, it didn't change my vote. I was, I was pro this from the start. It was just a little, like, extra, extra benefit. I, think wow. it was Banks. I don't know who exactly it was, but it was it was one of those moments of just, oh, man, that's it's crazy. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the Manifest Destiny's last gasp and President Grant's attempt to buy Santo Domingo. This usually is, comes up in an effort when well, under the rubric of reconstruction and almost I've seen it made uh, an argument somewhere that Grant wanted to buy Santo Domingo and send all the former slaves there. I think somebody's made yes. that case. Um, that I don't know what you think about that, but I, I found it interesting that Grant is trying to do several things with Native Americans. His Native American policy doesn't survive into a second term. He's got to shift things around with that. And so he, he has a kind of a, a broad and develop, constantly developing idea on on different forms of statehood, I think, is what he's mm-hmm. kind of angling for. And, and like any general who wins a lot of battles, you know, when you first don't succeed, you try other things, right? So so acquiring what is today the Dominican Republic, uh, or at the time was called Santo Domingo, is something he's trying to do, but it fails. It's kind of like, like a lot of the Manifest Destiny, which helps make yes. your argument. What's Grant's um, goal here in acquiring this Caribbean island? This is one of the trickier parts is getting at his motivation to actually carry this out. Because you're right, he's very tenacious and his own party bucks him on this. So they're Mm -hmm. the ones who basically say, we're not going along with this. He keeps trying to ram it through. And he really, I mean, he he tries through his entire first term, gets a lot of flack for it. It's a bigger deal than I think. I think the tendency is to see Grant as dealing with reconstruction, as, as you mentioned um, Indian policy, sort of the changes he's making within the United States. Yeah, Santa Domingo is such a big part of what he eventually tries to do. He makes the argument that it's going to benefit the U.S. in all kinds of ways. He argues that it could be a military base for the U.S. 
So there is sort of that argument after the Civil War, a lot of especially Union generals will sort of emerge from it and go, we really have to think of ourselves with more of an international stage. What would be the benefit of having, say, a Cuba or a Dominican Republic as both a port, but also as a sort of a, a naval station to protect the United States? So he sees that. The benefits of trade as well is something he really taps into that the U.S., as they'll make in the 1890s when the U.S. takes Puerto Rico and starts to expand more to the Caribbean, this argument that the U.S. will have more markets and will have sort of open trade with these places that can bring the U.S. goods that we don't have, but also be a market for goods that the U.S. wants to export. So you Mm -hmm. sort of see that play out. So he makes that as one of his arguments. The interesting one is the one you mentioned, because he does say several times, look, we know things are not going well in the South. And a lot of African-Americans do not want to be in Alabama or Mississippi. So one of the arguments he does make, and it's difficult to know if this is his motivation or if it's just an argument he sort of throws out there, is if you have a state or if it's broken into multiple states in the Dominican Republic, if individuals are not being treated well in Alabama, they could then, say, move to the Dominican Republic where they'd be with people – who Grant would see as as sort of being similar to themselves in a racialized way. So again, mm-hmm. not that they speak a different language and they sort right. of obviously right. have a different language. Yeah, there's background. tons of problems with that. But. Yes, yes. They don't think through all of these things. It's the same yeah. with Douglas. They never really think through like, if you take Cuba, are we speaking Spanish there? Or are right. like Catholics? The, sometimes they <laughs> overlook like the details, the actual details of how this – how this all would work, um, especially in the 1850s and 60s. It's like, you guys should think about that. Yeah. Uh, but he does. He, he makes that argument. The Republican Party does not buy it. So Democrats are really opposed to it. A lot of it's just deep, deep racism towards the Dominican Republic. This idea of we don't want to enfranchise formerly enslaved persons in the South. And now you're going to give all these people in the Dominican Republic the vote. Like, this is crazy to them. Mm-hmm. Republicans take most of those same arguments and say like, yeah, we don't really want to do this. Why are you wasting your time with this? So Grant is not able to get his own party along. He does. He's pretty persuasive. He actually gets a tie vote out of it all. So there is a vote in the Senate that goes down 28-28, but you need a two-thirds majority to get yeah. the treaty yeah. through. Right. He, right. he doesn't get close to that. And then he sort of just takes it out on high-profile Republicans after that, which <laughs> doesn't really help. He, he gets into this feud with Charles Sumner, who he claims was going to vote for it, and he turns against him. And we don't really know if they had an agreement or, or what happened, but Sumner's a no vote. And mm-hmm. those two men, they, they go they go at it at that point. They they do not see eye to eye. Yeah. Well, you, you mentioned racism, right. but it seemed like a lot of the things you were quoting also speak to cultural differences. Like, yes. You mentioned, as you mentioned, language religion, you know, to, to acquire, uh, Cuba, for instance, uh, would be to acquire tens of thousands of Spanish speaking Catholics, which is not what the Episcopalians in Virginia and the Congregationalists in Massachusetts had in mind when they were forming the United States. So it, uh, those, those differences are, are probably more profound and more unworkable in their depluribus unum nature that would have to come about which is yeah that's what's kind of tricky about it like getting back to stephen douglas it's really hard to know what their ultimate goal was 
like we can understand Canada, and if Canada sort of comes in, I don't know how they would get it to work. But not the French sort of, part of Canada. Yes, yes, you still have <laughs> have that issue. But the idea of okay, if the U.S. does keep expanding, would it become multi-ethnic? Douglas is notorious. I mean, he doesn't even want. He does not want black people in Illinois. So the idea that he would sort of be open to these ideas, yeah, no. So it is tricky how they're making those arguments. And then Grant, sort of what is he what is he tying that back to? Because at certain points, it sort of sounds like an old school sort of colonization scheme mm-hmm. in that, okay, we can essentially deport a large number of now formerly enslaved persons to the Dominican Republic. So at times it plays, it, it almost seems like that. But at the same point in time, he, he doesn't really make that argument and it doesn't appear that that's, that's his logic. So that's also right. sort of a tricky right. thing. But how any of this would have worked in actuality is one of the reasons why I say, I think Manifest Destiny was more just an idea that people have. Right. It's really not something that, when you look at it, I don't even know how it would have worked. The that's Republic their point at the time, out. right? I mean, that fuels all the opposition to it. It's, how is this going to work? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense to people. So what does it mean for, let's dial it back to say the 1910s, 20s and so forth. And let's say the history books today read like those might have read about Manifest Destiny uh, and that it fizzled. Um, and it was continent-wide idea that fizzled. Uh, how would Americans, I guess I'm trying to say it, if, if the revi- revisions of the 1920s through the 80s hadn't have happened, how would Americas think of their their country today? And I have I couch this by uh, in a state with ten to eleven, twelve percent Native American population. Mm-hmm. I'm often asked. Uh, it's probably the leading question I get as a state historian is people walk up to me and they say, "And ex- explain to me manifest destiny. It makes uh-huh. no sense to me. I'd like to try and understand what that was about." Um, so let's say we were doing a better job with teaching that over the last 60 years. Uh, what would it say about the United States? I think there's a couple of things we can pull from it. And the first one is that the story is much more complex than we've told, mm-hmm. which is, I think, the thing that I push back against the most is when you get to that textbook sort of version of U.S. expansion, it's just everyone agreed or at least most, let's just say most white people in the U.S. sort of agreed that expansion was good and beneficial and that the U.S. should do this. But it almost makes indigenous people an afterthought in the sense that, okay, all all these, all these Europeans, all these individuals show up and as time passes, they're just like, yeah, we'll expand and we'll expand. And then eventually they just decided, yeah, we're going to stop our boundaries here. It doesn't really play with all the different factors that go into that. And I think mm-hmm. we miss the actual story of the 19th century, which is that every state does have its sort of own unique history. But there's, there's constant challenges, contestations. The point I always try to make, and I always try to stress this, is the U.S. is not all powerful in the 19th century. I mean, it never is. But there's always limitations to what it's able to do. And this idea that you can just stand up in the Senate and go, yeah, Cuba, that's ours. It's not going to work out that way. And I think things on the ground are more difficult. So the narrative that I would like to see and that I would hope we could teach more is instead of just saying, okay, once you hit the 1830s and 40s, manifest destiny, U.S. expanded east to west, end of story with that. That's the end of Western expansion is to say, no, 
people really thought and debated about these issues. And there's a lot of things that people really struggled with. Whether the United States should include Texas or not, that was a lengthy debate. Mm -hmm. John Tyler has to ram that thing through by basically ignoring the rules and saying, we're just going to have an up and down vote instead of the two-thirds majority because he knows he could never get through the two-thirds majority that he needs. So uh-huh. he just he gets that, that through. And I think those are the debates is once you hit the U.S.-Mexican war, it's not like everyone disagrees. Oh, yeah, California is awesome. Um, let's take it. There's a lot of discussion about it. That was news to me, too, to say how unpopular California was or taking oh, yeah. California was not. It was there was a lot of pushback. My spouse, my wife is from California. So I would read her the quote from Daniel Webster, which I enjoyed sort of rubbing this in was I would not give one dollar for all of California. Uh-huh. She's like, Daniel Webster. Yeah, he was just wrong. So I'm like, well, <laughs> you got to think 19th century. They don't know a lot. But the reports that they have and, and a lot of a lot of Whigs are saying, oh, it's just, you know, a desert that you can't use. Right. So those are sort of so I think it's hard because the story becomes so much more complicated and difficult to tell because you have to look at contingency and all the different sort of things that don't happen mm-hmm. and how it plays out. But I do think we often and I say this as someone who's taught a lot of classes and who understands the need to have sort of a neat narrative. We just pop gas image up on the screen and, are, and go like manifest destiny. Right. And then boom, we're in the 1850s and we don't really grapple with all that happens and why the U S looks the way that it does today. Right. And sort of why I think as you move into the 20th century, why does the U S have its long sort of fraught history with Cuba? I mean, I do think a lot of that dates pre pre-Castro. I mean, a lot of it oh, is sure. the U.S. constantly saying, we're going to take you over. We're going to take you over. You're going to be part of us. Right. And, you know, it right. fails. Well, my son and I used to enjoy that show, How the States Got Their Shapes. Right? Yes. And you, you learn about all the contingency about um, that very thing, how the states came into the Union, where their borders were set, um, the fights and squabbles about... Uh, well, Indiana wanted a piece of the Great Lakes, and so they get that little niche up there near Gary, and that that kind of stuff. It's all contingent local state politics uh, that that plays out in its own unique way. There's no kind of gassed painting that can describe its inevitability. Um, yes, so. and I think that's really what I'm kind of pushing against is that inevitability. Yeah, can yeah. we understand sort of what happens, how it plays out? The the details of the story because i think it's a really interesting story i mean i learned so much from it with zachary taylor and with these sort of failed attempts that i just never knew i just i'd never heard of half of this so when i read about the clayton bull retreat i'm like this is interesting like the u.s making a deal with britain to say we're not going to take territory like it's such a break with the u.s past at that point it's just it's kind of interesting but it is hard i know it's hard to, to tell all the contingency and the sort of get that narrative. It's a lot to cover. It is a lot to cover. It's a lot to cover. But the more you know, the better you are. (laughs) Daniel, thanks so much for uh, this conversation and and, uh, the book. I hope it uh, has an impact and starts people talking. And certainly, as I said, in South Dakota, Manifest Destiny is a concept people struggle to understand. And I hope your book will help us do that. Certainly, this conversation. Thanks a lot. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history 
and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to fine podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.